Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Hey Kerwin, episode number 47. Now, some fun facts about 47. The number 47 is actually the number four and the number seven side by side. There's a fun fact you probably didn't know. Did you know that, Matthias? I had no idea. Most people don't. We're actually doing it. Hey Kerwin live. Hey Kerwin number 47, we're doing it live. We've got Jojo in the house. What's up? All right, first, question question number one. David Narrator. Oh, David Narrator. He should be a speaker. He should. Sorry. (laughs) What's the best way to change a belief or thought pattern? Mmm. Well, to me, a belief is a thought pattern, often a recurring one that's been present for an extended period of time to the point where it's almost created like this dominant network of neurons that filter the way that we perceive reality and life. And the way that you shift any, uh, any neurons, the way that you change any belief uh, or thought process is you start with the programming and you look at the communication system that is going in because what you put in fundamentally determines what comes out. And a belief system is something that comes out. Um, the way that we program our brain is actually through language. Uh, now, those thought processes, the things that you think about, are often looping language, are often uh, self-hypnotic prophe- prophecies, uh, auto-suggestion in Napoleon Hill's language. But what's most important to shift your beliefs is becoming very conscious and switching the lights on and shining the torch. This isn't a torch. Oh, this looks like a torch. Shining the torch uh, on your thinking. Because when you start to hear and you start to listen, to the words that are rolling around in your head on a repetitious basis, you start to realize that there's often a pattern. But there's, you also start to realize that it is, uh, there's a conscious, there's a certain subconscious and borderline conscious level of choice on the words that we repeat to ourselves on a, on a consistent basis. And if you've identified at a conscious level that your beliefs aren't servicing, serving you or servicing you or limiting you in some way, then you need to repattern those beliefs. And the way that you repattern those beliefs is by telling new stories. And you start consciously choosing different statements, consciously choosing different suggestions, constantly choosing different specific commands that you want to suggest to yourself on a repetitious and uh, secular basis over and over and over and over again to the point where they start to grab. And this is the thing with language. Like when you start to suggest something to yourself, um, you know, I do this example in, in Nail It and Scarlet. And in Nail It and Scarlet, I give this suggestion. And I give this suggestion about 35 to 37 times. But what's interesting <clears throat> is somewhere between uh, anywhere between 50 to 70% of the room are literally affected by that suggestion by the very next morning. So it's not that there requires a, an, an enormous level of suggestion in order to change a belief. But if you're looking for a situational belief to become circumstantial, so if you're looking for a belief that affects you in certain situations to become pervasive, then there's got to be a ritualistic nature to the way that you program your brain, brain, even your brain. Uh, and by, by ritualistic, I mean like sit down and actually write down the commands that you're looking for. But as a, as a, by virtue of those commands or those statements becoming true, then the belief systems that you need to, for that statement to become true will call, cause the consequence or the automatic behaviour <clears throat> that is what you're looking for. <clears throat> and so this is where. For me, it's very, I'm very much about deliberate construction. Very carefully construct the program that you want to in, basically um, enter into your brain. That will fundamentally start to naturally and organically shift, naturally and organically shift the beliefs. Your beliefs are your filters. The code is what we put in. The beliefs are what determine what things mean once we put it in there. And at first, depending on what your belief systems are, the stuff that you're putting in there might actually be in conflict with some of those beliefs. And so you have to maintain, you have to be consistent, you have to repeat, you have to be ritualistic in nature to the point where it starts to stick. And then all of a sudden, your beliefs will start to shift. And before you know it, uh, your filters will change and you'll see things that you've never seen before much like the salt. Because one of the things that we've got to understand is our beliefs create scotomas. And our scotomas are a psychologically induced blind spot. And oftentimes in life, you know, we go through life looking for things, whether it be a, a partner, uh, a feeling, um, you know, 
or an emotion or, or money, but we can't see what we want. And the reason why we can't see what we want is our limiting beliefs not only limit our potential, but they also limit our scope of, you know, sens- 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 sensual acuity, sensual, sensual, sens- sensory. Sensory. There we go. <laughs> Somebody needs to get out more. Sensory, <laughs> sensory acuity. Uh, and as a result, you know, your sensory acuity determines what you can't see. For example, you open the cupboard, you're looking very quickly, you say to yourself, ah, can't find the salt. And even if the salt is there, by that pure suggestion, it can literally wipe it out from what you see consciously. And then all of a sudden you yell out to your partner, hey honey, where's the salt? They say, it's in the cupboard. You say, no, it's not. They say, yes, it is. You say, no, it's not. Then they wander over and they say, so what's this bozo? It was right in front of you. And you're like, I swear to God, it wasn't there before. Now, whether it be the salt, the car keys, you know, our sunglasses, we've all experienced, you know, scotoma in some way, shape or form that we've had a bit of a, a giggle about. But most people aren't aware that, you know, a, a, an ideal partner can be a scotoma if you believe that there are no good people out there. Uh, money can become a scotoma if you believe that there is no money in the world and there's nothing but lack. Customers can become a scotoma if you believe that there are no customers around and the economy is terrible. It's just becoming conscious of the way that our language affects our beliefs that determine what we see that ultimately affect the consequences in our life. So become more conscious, tune into what you say, become conscious, become deliberate, become, yeah, surgical and you can change anything. Kapow. Okay, Emma. Hey, Emma. Emma. Um, uh, she says, hey, Corwin. Where do I start to create a new relationship with my nine-year-old daughter when our foundation is shaky? Start where you are, you know. Um, I, I find one of the best things to do in any relationship is to start where you are and, and to, you know, take a, a long and extensive moral inventory and perhaps start on a blank canvas by wiping the initial canvas clean. And one of the best ways to um, wipe a canvas clean is through personal responsibility and open honest communication. So if you would like to start a new relationship with your nine-year-old daughter, my advice would be is sit down with your daughter uh, and perhaps discuss the relationship today. And don't discuss all the things that she's done wrong, okay? Create an environment where that might happen naturally and consequentially, where you sit there and you start to talk about all the things that perhaps that you feel you may have done wrong. Um, and don't, ex- don't talk about them in a way where you're trying to justify them or blame or, you know, or distort reality. Just be open and honest. Say, look, I've made a lot of mistakes. Here are some of the things that I've made mistakes about. Like, and again, I have an incredible relationship with my son, but even when I make mistakes, which I do from time to time, and you know, in some cases on a regular basis, I'll sit down and say, buddy, look, I just want to say, daddy's actually really sorry that he did that. And you know, my son and I have this, this thing now where we can sit down and talk about things. He's only almost five. Uh, and I'll say to him, buddy, you know, I, I know daddy may have yelled at you before, and I just want you to know daddy shouldn't have yelled at you, and daddy's actually really sorry. Uh, and I hope, I hope you can forgive me. And it's such it's, it's a point now where he goes, it's okay, Dad, I, I understand. It's okay, Dad, Dad, I get it. And it's just like, dude, thank you, I appreciate that. And you know, depending on his intellectual um, comprehension of exactly what's going on, I'm not too sure. But what he does know is he knows the practice. And now what we find when he does things that he perhaps shouldn't do, I don't have to sit there and tell him not to do them. He'll actually come to me and say, Daddy, you know that thing that I did before? And I'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I know that thing you did before. He goes, I just want to say I'm sorry, sorry, I shouldn't have done it. And I hope you can forgive me. And um, you know, whether you're judging me now, now by the fact that I say, oh, I hope you can forgive me and forgiveness isn't required or it is required, what's interesting now is he adopts that behavior. Um, but it creates a very uh, open framework for not only that transpiration, transpiration, transference of communication, but also the demonstration of responsibility and accountability. Because in my world, what good people do is they apologize when they fuck up. You know, in my world, what good people do is when they fuck up, they try and make amends. Uh, and to me, that's why I try and demonstrate to my son is when I fuck up, you know, I try and act like a good person and, and do the things that a good person will do. And not only does he, you know, have a, a lot more 
tolerance um, for not only me but for other people but he's also adopting those behaviors as well and they're becoming his own so you know start it start from scratch but start from where you are don't try and go well let's just pretend nothing happened and today we're going to start a new day and <clears throat> we're just going to pretend that uh, that it all or none of that stuff ever happened before and we're just going to start anew you know forget that stuff because kids don't forget they remember and we're the ones that fuck most of the kids up and most issues that adults are dealing with in their adult life are issues that their parents created and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm just saying that's in most cases how the world works and that's our responsibility as parents is in many cases to help them do whatever work is required to overcome whatever issues that they've got that we may have perhaps you know, um, brought into their life. And a great way to do that is through open and honest communication, open and honest vulnerability, open and honest accountability and responsibility, and just showing kids what it looks like to, to be wrong, to apologize when you're wrong, and to actually take account for the things that you shouldn't have done so that they can actually go, wow, I felt that that was wrong, but you've always fought to, fought to say that you were right. And now that I know you're wrong, it actually feels right. Like the level of connection you can create just with that moment uh, could be epic. So go for it. Don't muck about. Make it right. Next question. <sighs> It's from Giacomo. Giacomo. Yeah, it says... Giacomo. Giacomo. Whatever you said. Yeah. How do you make people step up inside your organization? How do you make people step up inside your organization? There was uh, Catherine the Great once said, uh, the way that I influence... I can't remember. I'm quoting here. No, I'm fucking sub-paraphrasing here. Um, Someone asked her about how she was so, excuse me, influential. And she basically said something to the fact that uh, I only get those to do that which they would already do. And what I mean by that is the way that you get people to step up in any organization, the way that you get to anyone to step up in any, in any area of their life is to start to help them correlate the connection between the thing that needs to be done, the thing that's very important to them, and how that thing that needs to be done is going to allow the thing that's very important to them to be even better in their life. So if family is something that's important to them, how will doing this thing allow them to have more quality time with their family? And this is where like real motivation is intrinsic. It's something that's internal, but oftentimes it needs to be triggered by, in some cases, a bit of external direction or an external trigger. And so as a leader, one of our goals is not only to recruit the right people into the organization and in most cases have the ability to self-lead and self-manage, but it's also the ability to make sure that we take the time and spend the time and invest the time, either ourselves or the individuals that you know, are key leaders in our group, to get to know the people in the organization to find out what are the things that are important to them? What are the things that you value? Because when we look at the, the hierarchy of psychology, like the, you know, there's four elements to a psychology. There's a, there's a coding system, there's a belief system, uh, there's a value system, and there's an identity system. You know, the, the coding system is based around stories, the stories that we put in on a regular basis, the auto-suggestion. Uh, the self-hypnotic uh, suggestion. The next thing is that we have is the belief system. The belief systems are the filters. They're things that help us, you know, uh, eliminate the things that are, that we have to be conscious of, so our brain doesn't process so much information, so it can stay regulated and stay calm. And the third thing is uh, a part of our uh, psychology is our value system. Now, our value system is also known as our motives. Now, our motives is the root word for motivation. So in order for someone to have a motivation, to, in order for someone to be motivated, they've got to have a motive. And when you look at what the word, the root word of motive is, it's a reason. What is a reason or a why? Uh, as some, you know, personal development gurus will tell you, you know, John, Jim Rowan said himself, you know, when, when, you, when you know the, when the why is clear and big enough, the how is easy. And so when it comes to motivating anyone, it comes down to connecting them with why. Like, why should someone be motivated? Why should I be motivated? And sometimes uh, there needs to be a conversation or direction or multiple conversations or an environment or a situation that helps that connection take place. But what I will say is to lip all the way back to the very beginning is the best way to motivate your team is to hire motivated people. 
Um, that to me is the simplest and easiest way to do it. Uh, you know, we always hire for attitude and train for skill. It's not that we don't, we're not interested in skills. Skills are very important to us. But one of the things that's more important to us is the attitude of the individual. And I'd much rather hire someone who's got less skills but a better attitude than someone who's got great skills but a shit attitude and a big ego. Uh, and so for me, you know, half the battle is in hiring someone that's already self-motivated, already self-led, but then the next half there is being able to connect the things that you want them to do in your organization with the things that are already important to them. Now, here's the key. If you've already hired well, guess what you've got? You've got people that are aligned with your purpose. They're aligned with your mission. And they're also, guess what? They're aligned with your values. Excuse me, I've got a runny nose. Now, when you're hiring someone that's aligned with your values, guess what? You have the same value system. They have similar value system. What's a value system? It's a set of motives. <laughs> I know, surprise surprise. So when you hire someone that's aligned with your values, then they're naturally motivated by the things that you do in your organization because the things that you do in your organization, they should be your values because they're the things that you do well. They're the things that become the benchmarks for behavior. And so for me, as I said, half the battle is in hiring someone that's already motivated and the other 25% of that battle is making sure that whoever you've hired is already motivated, is motivated by the same values you are. Uh, and the third aspect or the last 25% of it is making sure the connection is clear. As a leader, do you have the ability to understand the individual that you're communicating with and be able to create that conscious connection with you between the individual and the organization's mission, the organization's values, the organization's priorities, the things that you want them to do so that they can see a clear connection and are naturally motivated to do what you want them to do and they don't need a fucking punch jumpstart every fucking morning, you know, with a cup of cacao uh, or whatever it is that they need and they don't need a red wine at the end of the day because they're so stressed because they're doing shit that they hate. So that might have, that's, that's the best advice I can give you. Hope that helps. We're gonna kick it to the live question. Gonna kick it to the live. Kicking live. Kick, 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 kicking live. Uh, I got one already, actually. Oh, wow. That was fast. I know. Simon Cook. Cook. Yep. Cook or Cook? Well, Simon Cook or Simon Cook? Cook. Cook. Yeah. Cookie. <laughs> Cookie Steve. <laughs> you making fun of Steve? Wow. That's just right. wrong. Simon Cook. High performance. High performance has been thrown around quite a bit these days. Yes. What does Kerwin Ray believe a high-performing person encumbers? Oh, high performance is the ability to execute at a level beyond what would be considered normal, um, sustainably, um, sustainably, from a both an energetic, emotional, and a stress perspective, and enjoyably. Which is basically, how do you perform better than anyone else and enjoy it? But how do you perform better than anyone else and sustain it? And how do you perform better than anyone else? And you can do it without it basically putting you into some kind of a nosedive, either from a stress perspective or an emotional perspective because you're burning yourself out. And you're right. Yeah, high performance is something that is getting thrown around more and more and more and more. Uh, and I think the reason it's becoming thrown around more and more and more and more is because people are starting to realize the, 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 pro the productive nature of performance. They're starting to re realize the ROI of performance. You know, all you've got to do is look at you know, some of our K2 Elite clients. One of the things that we teach them, because to me, there are so many aspects of performance. And one of the aspects of performance is being able to, you've got the physical aspects of high performance. And then you've got the practical aspects of high performance. You've got the strategic aspects of high performance. You've got the tactical aspects of high performance. You know, if you look at some of the strategic aspects of high performance, it's having the ability to plan. You know, and you know, our the planning methodology, as an example, that we use in our K to Elite, on average, our clients experience you know increase in personal productivity by 200 to 600 percent, which means on average 400 percent, which means one day's worth of work can become four days worth of work, 
one week's worth of work and becomes a month worth of work. One month's worth of work becomes three months worth of work. That's fucking high performance, bro. You know, but that's, that's a strategic aspect of high performance. You know, then you've got the physical aspects of high performance is, you know, are you actually nurturing, uh, nurturing um, both nutritionally, uh, hydrationally, cellularly, psychologically, you know, the aspects that are required, you know, emotionally, um, biochemically, uh, supplement wise, you know, there are so many aspects to it. But the reason I think performance is becoming, you know, such a high, a high value target you know, in the world of not just business, but in the world of obviously sport, in the world of parenting, uh, basically in any world where people are trying to be, become better is because it's got huge ORI, because when you become better, it, it becomes easier. And I think when you look at the ultimate, you know, the ultimate goal of high performance, it's to create flow states where you essentially are able to do things in most respects from what looks like on the outside, it's in an effortless nature. Uh, there's a great book actually that I've just read called Stealing Fire. I can't remember the author, but it sent me on a, uh, a really interesting journey so far, which um, I'm very impressed with, uh, that talks about the three elements of, or the three different things that can actually you know, hook you into a flow state. It's, it's essentially the last 20, 30 years of performance re- research into performance. And they talk about technology and how technology is playing a huge role now in helping us um, with performance and drop into performance states. Everything from you know, smart watches to the God helmet to these devices that can basically emit um, you know, a pulse of electromagnetic energy that can offset the frontal lobes, that can give you direct access to your subconscious and allow you to drop into flow states. You know, you've got mystical aspects of flow states and mystical aspects of performance where people use meditation, chanting, uh, and even different forms of you know, prayer in order to access flow states and high performance. And then you've got the, the, the pharmacological side of flow states as well and performance where people are now into uh, nootropics and psychedelics and looking at many other different ways that they can increase performance uh, in, in healthy and, and happy ways, um, you know, in interesting ways as well. So to me, I think performance is one of those things that has many aspects to it. There's many layers. Stealing Fire is a great book that, you know, talks about those three aspects. Uh, but for me, performance is like a thumbprint. Every individual is going to be different, and I don't think what I prescribe for myself to achieve high performance is going to be the same prescription I'd give to everyone else. But what I will say is it's going to become bigger, and that's why it's a, what's interesting. It, it's a major focus for me, but it's only in the last couple of years become a focus that I've externalized because for me, my performance has always been really rooted in how do I get the best out, how do I get the most, how do I perform at the highest level, then how do I teach my clients in business, and now it's a core part of our uh, our work because you know when we look at the performance that we're able to induce not just in our clients but also people from just watching a 60 second video yeah it's a core part of my spiel now so yeah high performance <laughs> two final questions from Facebook two final questions from Facebook first one is from Shad Watson Chad or Shad Shad Chad hey girl. Shad 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 isn't it dangerous to bring your guns to work every day <laughs> <laughs> Next question is from Kathy Stewart. Hey, Kathy. Uh, she says, uh, hey, hey, Kerwin, from Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the best way to get a guy who is insecure come out of his shell and have more self-confidence when he's talking to a girl he likes? Practice. Practice, 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 practice. Uh, get him to do things that he's naturally good at already. Get him to do it on a regular basis so he builds confidence. Get him to start doing things that he's not so good at but have a low threshold for... Um, uh, comprehension, 
i.e. teach him something new that's not too difficult that will naturally build confidence and then put him into a situation where he has to speak to you know loads and loads and loads of different people so you know the way that i build confidence in anyone is you know there's a few approaches there's the there's the, there is the external psychological way where you start giving people compliments and suggestions and start suggesting on a regular basis the things that you want to see in them but you just suggest them as a uh, as an observation matthias you're looking very confident today matthias you're looking so strong matthias you look very handsome matthias you know, I really love the way that you communicate. Matthias, you're so influential, like those sort of things uh, that can help build confidence. Uh, you've then got the things that are of more of a, of a practical nature where, Matthias, you know, come and let's go and build a puzzle together. Oh, you've never done a puzzle before? Let me show you how to do it. It's not so hard, but, you know, I'll, I'll show you the pointers and once you've done it a couple of times and, you know, I then show Matthias how to build a puzzle and before we know it, he's actually confident in something he's never done before. And I'd say, okay, let's go and do some, I don't know, speed dating. Let's go to a networking conference and let's have a specific goal of speaking to at least 10 women, you know. Uh, and again, I don't want to, sometimes people go, oh, this is just chauvinistic and it's all about picking up chicks. No, some dudes legitimately are paralyzed by the idea of actually speaking to a person or a woman of the opposite sex. Uh, and I think, you know, from my experience, the way that you overcome any fear is through exposure therapy. And so to me, you want to expose yourself to the thing that, you know, that you freak out about on a regular basis. And the more you can do that, the more accustomed you will be to actually being able to regulate the biochemistry and neurochemistry that comes up when you're in those moments that trigger you. Uh, and then, you know, that, then all of a sudden you start to build, bring a little a level of consciousness. So the first girl that you speak to and you introduce yourself to, you know, she might think that you don't even speak English based on the level of com conversation you have. But by the time you get to the 20th or the 30th girl that you're speaking to, by this stage you've had enough exposure to go, okay, now, I, oh, okay, I'm remembering to breathe now. Okay, I'm remembering not to pick my nose. Okay, I'm remembering not to say silly things or silly words. I'm remembering not to look, you know, at uh, uh, below the shoulders. I'm looking them in the eye. And then you start to relax and then you're able to start to converse and then before you know it, you know, you're, uh, you, you've got a bit of confidence in that area. Exposure therapy is a powerful force. Uh, just put yourself in the situation that you know forces you to develop the skills, but also don't go in there empty-handed. A set of tools is also very helpful. You know, so when you are you know in situations like that, making sure that you are conscious of the psychology, the stories that you're telling yourself, making sure you are conscious of any emotion that's in play, any stress that's in play, and then using the tools. You know, making sure that you're aware that you are stressed. Shit! Oh my God, I'm freaking out. Okay, let's breathe. Let's not forget to breathe. Now it might not be helpful if you're sitting there talking to a girl and go. <laughs> What's your name? Like again, but you want to be making sure you're resetting yourself, breathing efficiently, effectively between conversations to help reset the autonomic nervous system. And um, yeah, making sure you breathe, controlling the meaning of the situations. You didn't just get rejected. You just built a little bit of strength. Okay. Um, you didn't just uh, have a bad conversation. You just learned some of the things that you shouldn't have said and develop some real gratitude for the process that you're on. And that'll help balance out the biochemistry as well. And just reframe it. You know, you're doing something positive. It's a, it's a great opportunity. So making sure you're aware when you're stressed, breathe when you're stressed, control the meaning of the stressful, the stressful stimulus. Just because it's, you've got a rejection doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it made you a little bit stronger, made you a little bit wiser, taught you something not to say. Uh, and then develop a genuine level of gratitude for the things that you're doing that are producing the stress so that you can actually you know, build some naturally flowing DHEA which will counteract the cortisol and the adrenaline and help calm you out. Uh, or alternatively, you know, maybe a couple of valerian before you go in there, which is a herb that'll help you relax. Maybe that will help as well. But my advice is try and avoid using alcohol as a fake courage to do it because otherwise then in every situation, you're gonna have to be drunk in order to talk to chicks and that is a great way to become an alcoholic. I want to find a chick. Well, I'll just drink every day. Yeah, not the smartest thing to do. So hopefully that helps, my friend. Hopefully that helps you find a chick. And if it works, let me know and I'll try it myself. Uck. <laughs>
Uh, right, we got 60 seconds left. We might be able to squeeze one last sure. thing. Sure. Uh, 60 seconds. 60 seconds. Go on in 60 seconds. That's Jam all it takes. Jan, what do billionaires know and master to become so successful? I am not a billionaire. Uh, although I have interviewed a number of billionaires, I have studied a number of billionaires, uh, and I've got an assumption. I don't know for a fact because I am not a billionaire. Although, you know, when you look at um, you know some of the greatest billionaires on, on this planet, one of the things that I would say that they have mastered is they've mastered um, what I would say is that that complex equation between relationships and values. They've learned how to build you know certain relationships to a level both with themselves, with those around them, with their team, with their customers, okay, and they've learned how to deliver a level of value where people perform at such a, at such a height or, or at such a level that produces natural consequences, things like revenue and profit and those sorts of things. Uh, to me, there are so many variables to that question that I could really go off on as a tangent, but because we only got 60 seconds, uh, I'll leave it with that. Those who know how to build relationships and deliver value will build strong relationships because relationships are all based on value. And when I say value, I really mean values. The things that are important to people. And the way that we build relationships is by dropping ones and zeros into values baskets. So, you know, if someone's interested in family and we're interested in family, we drop ones into their basket by communicating ones to them into their family basket. And as a result, they start to see, oh, they're like me. They like family too. We connect. We've got some common some common ground here, um, you know, I like this person. I have a relationship with the person, I'm motivated by this person, and I'll follow instructions from this person. So if we can build relationships by understanding the importance of understanding values, both individual values, market values, uh, economic values, like, and, 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 and bridge those two together, you'll be able to create success beyond your wildest dreams. The only thing you really need on top of that is a really strong commercial model. But the way that we build strong relationships is by demonstrating value and that value can be through a product okay it can be through a service or it can be through something that's actually important to someone but these products or these services oftentimes they are in most cases if not every case they're affecting a value within the individual uh, which is something that is important to them and the more we understand about that process the easier it is to yeah to motivate to inspire to sell to market to do the things that we need to do to ultimately i guess become a billionaire that's my assumption but I'll let you know once I get there, if it still works. <laughs> 47, over. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was episode hashtag 47 of the Hey Kerwin Show, live on Facebook and down to you guys. If you have a question, hashtag Hey Kerwin on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, LinkedIn, fucking Twitter, uh, and even skywriting, sign writing. You can even spray paint the sign out the front here. No one's still done it yet, but I do not do that. Do not do that. I do want someone to do it though.